you are now listening to the June 17th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Fruit of the Spirit, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Fruit of the Spirit. Hello, this is Terry with the Fruit of the Spirit a time in which we confess our hearts to the Lord. For the past several weeks, we have been sharing that there is one fruit of the Spirit. This fruit has many individual characteristics. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and lastly, self-control. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. In this verse, the Apostle Paul emphasized the keen relationship that exists between faith and love. We will desire to know God more when we get to know Him properly and believe in Him. We will love God more and more and wish to share in His attributes or personality as we learn more about Him and meditate on Him deeper and deeper. Since these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit reflect God's own personality, love then becomes the rich soil to nourish the other characteristics and cause them to flourish in our lives. Apostle Paul emphasized how faith can work through love as a catalyst in this verse. He is teaching us that love is not only the rich soil that allows the fruit of the Spirit and its characteristic to grow well in our hearts, but also is the driving force that allows our faith to become manifest and work in our lives. God loved us first. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What would God want from us who have received such wonderful grace and love? He wants us to love Him with all our hearts. Then, how can we love Him with all our hearts? We will be able to love God more when we meditate on who He is. His attributes, His personality, and what He has done for us should cause us to thank Him for the amazing love He has given us. Then, we will be filled with joy and peace, and we will be able to endure whatever comes our way because of His love. I am sure you may have experienced how you were able to overcome difficult situations with generous hearts when you first met the Lord and everything became anew and beautiful. It is because God has given us joy, peace, and strength to endure them. Of the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace, and patience are not acquired through learning or training, but we receive them from God when we meet Him personally and have fellowship with Him. Joy, peace, and patience are related to God's sovereignty, wisdom, righteousness, and love. Because Apostle Paul trusted God's sovereignty, he was joyful even when he was in prison, and was at peace when the ship he was on was in danger of being shipwrecked. Joy, peace, and patience will be made manifest in our lives as we live out the characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. These are the characteristics that will transcend any unwanted or difficult situations as we begin to trust God's sovereignty, wisdom, righteousness, and love. 
It is my prayer that we will desire to meditate on God's love for us. It was because of this love that He sent His only Son for us. And by faith, we will be able to endure the hardships of our lives and be able to endure life's obstacles with overflowing joy and peace. Goodbye!
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Malachi Tresler of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix. Today's topic is, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Malachi. Our big idea this morning, let God be God. Let God be God. And I want to do something that's a little bit out of the ordinary this morning. This is such a highly contested passage. And so in order to not appear to be forcing my own structure upon the text, I'm going to try to put the whole body of the passage on the screen in order to show, to the best of my ability, Paul's argument. There are two questions in the passage, and that's going to be our structure for the sermon. There's two questions that are asked. The first, is there injustice on God's part? We see that in verse 14. And then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In verse 19. So those two questions will be the sort of the headers. And just to be clear, it's fine to have questions about these things. There's a mystery here. There's nothing wrong with asking questions about this. But the flavor of these questions, as Paul presents them in Romans 9, have a flavor of prideful accusation. So that's what I'm going to call them. There are two accusations in this passage. First, accusation number one, God is unrighteous. We'll tackle that in verses 14 to 18. And then accusation number two, God is unfair. We'll see that in 19 to 23. So we're going to try to track along, try to find out why those two questions, those accusations might arise in the audience of who Paul is writing to. And then we'll try to track with his responses. And then we'll try to think about what it means for us. Accusation number one, God is unrighteous. Verses 14 to 18. Paul says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Why would Paul think that that question would come up in the mind of his readers or his audience? Well, it it naturally actually arises from the passage that we just covered last Sunday. Romans 9, verses 6 to 13, and I'm going to need to read that just back into our hearing so we have some more context here. Romans 9, 6 to 13. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the context of the question that arises in our mind. As we said last Sunday, God is able freely to decide whom he wants to bless. This is God's prerogative. He freely elects based on his own purposes, which we saw laid in the Old Testament narratives. We see it in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8. Just remind you what we find there. God says to Israel, it was not because you were more in number, than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, 
from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And here in Romans 9, it wasn't, this is what Paul's saying, it wasn't because Jacob was a great dude that God loved him. He was kind of a turkey, actually. He swindled his brother out of his inheritance. But this passage says that it was before either Jacob or Esau had been born or had done anything good or bad that God decreed his electing love for Jacob and withheld it from Esau. Okay, so if you've understood what Paul is illustrating from the Old Testament, you might then be tempted to think, well, that sounds unjust. If God decides, apart from anything in the human being, whom he will choose and whom he will reject, how can he be righteous? That sounds arbitrary. It sounds like it's based on random choice or God's own personal whim rather than any reason or system. That's not how God ought to judge. To our thinking, God needs to observe the evidences of who deserves love or who deserves hate before he is able to declare his judgment. Otherwise, he would be unjust. Otherwise, he would be unrighteous. So do you understand why the question is being asked? It's important. Notice Paul's answer to the question. Paul doesn't back off one inch. He could have resolved the tension that we find there in our minds by very quickly responding, well, no, God's not unjust because his election is based on his divine foreknowledge of how someone will live in the future. Notice that Paul does not do that. He actually goes the other direction. He doubles down on the side of God's freedom and God's sovereignty. Does that make God unjust? By no means. Absolutely not. May it never be. This is very strong language from Paul, the very strong response to that question. It's because there's very clear and consistent testimony across Scripture of God's justice, of God's faithfulness, of his righteousness. Consider just two. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, that's God, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 11.7, For the Lord is righteous, and he does righteous deeds. There's plenty more where that comes from. Two quick examples, not to mention even Romans 3. Earlier in this book where it was explained that God is shown himself to be just in and through the cross of Christ. Nothing God does is unjust. That must be in your mind. That must be in your heart. Paul states his response up front. No, God is not unjust. He is not unrighteous. And then he supports that by quoting from Scripture. There are principles found in the Old Testament narratives that illustrate, that give support to what Paul has said about God's freedom to bestow love and mercy as he sees fit. He goes back to the account of Israel and their exodus from Egypt. So example one, the first example that we see is written for us in the next verse, verse 15. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is a reference to the Exodus narrative, as we know from chapters 33 and 34 of Exodus. Paul goes further by giving a second example. We see this in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So at this point, this actually brings us earlier on in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel have been kept under harsh conditions as slaves in Egypt. They are not free to worship the one true and living God. And so they cry out for deliverance from this bondage. They want deliverance from this slavery. God hears them. God raises up a man called Moses to lead them out. And so Moses goes to the Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, and Moses says, let my people go. But Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go, does he? What does Pharaoh respond? No. Well, why not? Why wouldn't Pharaoh let Israel go? What's the big deal? What's what's the matter? Well, I mean, the, the quick answer would probably be that he enjoys the Israelites' cheap slave labor. He, he benefits from them being around. But Exodus gives us a rare glimpse to what's going on behind the veil, about what's going on in Pharaoh's heart, which we normally can't see. Here is the very first reference to Pharaoh's hard heart. It's in Exodus 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. We can see this in other verses that have uh, referenced that there on the screen, 9, 10, 11, 14, say that same thing, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We read elsewhere in Exodus chapter 8, chapter 9, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So chapter 8.15, for example, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he had hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And there are yet other passages that simply say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So the one who is doing the hardening is intentionally left unclear in the text. Exodus 7.13, for example, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So that's Exodus 7, 13. Okay, now forgive me. Hold on for just a moment. We do need to talk about a minor bit of grammar to understand what we're finding here. We can speak of Pharaoh's hardened heart in two ways, active and passive. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. These two things are both there. But we also find passive language Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The being, the cause of the hardening, is not explicit in the text. It's also described in that passive voice. His heart was hardened. So it's, it's intentionally unclear about who performed the hardening. Okay, I tuck that away. No matter what, we must affirm that all these ways of describing the hardening of Pharaoh's heart are true. We find them in Scripture. We say, that's right. That's right. But in Romans, back to Romans, that's where our passage is, how is Paul using this? Paul intentionally puts the emphasis on God's divine freedom. Just like in Exodus, before Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God predicts that he himself will harden Pharaoh's heart. There is a concurrence happening here. Two things happening. God's orchestration of history to display his glory in and through the Pharaoh of Egypt and Pharaoh's willful action to preserve his own best interests. 
we don't want to deny either of those truths. We need to see that and say yes and amen. We recall that after those ten plagues, Pharaoh let Israel go. Pharaoh changes his mind, chases after them with his army, but they get caught up in the Red Sea and they become destroyed. And then Israel sings a song of celebration in Exodus chapter 15, that song of Moses, where he says things like, the Lord has thrown the horse and rider into the sea, and he says, quote, he has triumphed gloriously over them. He is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. So this is how the Lord showed his power in and through Pharaoh, through bringing Israel salvation and bringing Egypt judgment. So Paul concludes, what we learn from that piece of Israel's history is that God not only has mercy according to his free will, but he also hardens whomever he wills. God has absolute freedom in his dispensation of grace. So whether in the showing of mercy or in the giving of judgment, God is free and sovereign. Let me just recap what we've walked through here. Is God unrighteous for not saving everyone in the ethnic line of Israel? Absolutely not. He gives two illustrations to support God's freedom from the exit of narrative. First, he told Moses that he is free and under no obligation to give mercy or compassion to anyone. Second, he told Pharaoh that he raised him into his position of authority and hardened his heart to display his authority over him and to manifest his name, which is his glory, which includes his justice. You tracking? Okay, that brings us to the next next potential accusation against God. Accusation number two, God's not fair. Verse 19 says, okay, based on what just happened, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul is anticipating what someone might think if they're following what he just said carefully. So why would Paul think that that question would come up in the mind of the audience? Well, it naturally arises what he just, from what he just said. He just, a verse, uh, in, in verse 18, he just asserted that God has the freedom in order to fulfill his own eternal purposes to sovereignly harden the human heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to provide an opportunity to display both his mercy and his wrath. And he does this without any reference to human desires or human efforts. That's verse 16. No, I don't like that. That can't be, comes the accusation. If a a person's hardness of heart is the work of a sovereign God, well, then it would be unfair for God to hold him accountable for his resistance to God's commands. So if you can't resist God's will, then we shouldn't be held accountable for our rebellion. Ultimately, then, our, our rebellion would be God's fault. If you want to be logical about it, right? Do you get the question? Paul's response, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In verses 20 through 21, Paul emphasizes the important distinction between God and man, between creator and creation, and he uses an illustration of a pot and a potter. This is a clear allusion to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 16. You turn things upside down, literally what he says, 
Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he didn't make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. In our call to worship text that we read earlier, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him and who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. This, of course, was in the context of God raising up a pagan king named Cyrus in order to redeem Israel from their exile. And you might think, well, that seems like a strange way for God to deal in human history. The prophet Isaiah's response is, that's God's prerogative. Let's let God be God. Let's focus, though, for a moment on that, that, that phrase, the same lump, that we find in verse 22, or I'm sorry, 21. The potter spoken of here has one lump of clay. And he makes two kinds of vessels from that one source of clay. Those for honorable use, like the fancy china that you might use on holidays, or those for dishonorable use, like a chamber pot. He's not comparing humans to inanimate objects, but he's illustrating the authority of God over his creation. But let's just think about that one lump. There's the same lump. Just as with the twins, Jacob and Esau, they came from one source under the same conditions. This is important to keep in mind about this lump. The one lump of clay, which represents humanity in this analogy, is a sinful humanity. Since the fall, humanity is not neutral. We are not righteous by default. That, so that same lump of clay that is spoken about there, that's the posterity of Adam. That's the children of Adam. We have all fallen into perdition. We have fallen into ruin by our sin. This is why nearly every Christian statement of faith that you'll find at any church is going to say that we are sinners by nature. We have all sinned against God. This is what Paul said in Romans 3. And the just penalty for that sin is death. This is what Paul said in chapter 6. So that means while God does harden whomever he freely chooses, human beings, because of sin, are responsible for their ultimate condemnation. Take a deep breath. This is about as close as we're going to get to the summit. That brings us to Paul's conclusion in this portion 22 and 23, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, which should immediately remind us of what he did with Pharaoh, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now I take that, that final phrase to be central to this entire passage. That God does all things for his glory. That all of these things have been done in order to make known the riches of his glory for those vessels of mercy. But let's just return now to that momentary grammar lesson that we did earlier. The concept of active and passive language. Notice in this passage that the vessels of wrath are prepared, but it doesn't say who does the preparation. It's passive in that sense. Now, look at the vessels of mercy, and notice he has prepared them beforehand. There's an important distinction here. That's active language. It says that God prepared them beforehand. I just want to draw attention to this. There's 
There's a, dis- there's a distinction here between these two. There are even different words in the original language. It's kind of hard for us to tell in our ESV. They both say prepared, but they're actually two different words in the original. He uses one word for the vessels of wrath being fitted for, which is what the King James says, or put together for destruction. And then Paul uses a different, unique word for the vessels of glory, where he says he prepared them in advance. So we might read through this passage very quickly and just sort of assume that God is acting the same way in both of these circumstances, that he prepared vessels of wrath, he prepared the vessels of glory, and he's done both of them in the same way, that there's symmetry between the two of them, but they are not symmetrical. Paul purposefully describes them in different ways. Think back to Pharaoh. Remember, God prophesied that he would harden his heart, but Pharaoh wasn't passive in that, right? Pharaoh actively hardened his own heart. And in some places, we get that passive language where his heart was hardened, where it's intentionally unclear who did the hardening. Here's the point. God must actively work in us to create faith, but he doesn't need to actively work in us to create sin. God must actively work in us to create faith, but he doesn't need to actively work in us to create sin. That would appear to make God the author of evil, which he most certainly is not. How can those two things be true? How can God sovereignly ordain whatsoever comes to pass, and yet humans are responsible for their own sin and rebellion? We tend to think of the human will and God's divine will as being mutually exclusive. Okay, it's maybe 50% me, and it's 50% God, or if we're being generous, it's 99% God, 1% me. Michael Horton, a professor in California, was really helpful to me in thinking through this. He says this, quote, We shouldn't think in terms of a single pie that's divided between God and us, but of God's own way of being free, as sovereign creator, and the creaturely freedom that God has given to all of us as his image bearers. So percentages are not a helpful way to think about this. God is sovereign. We are responsible. How can all these things hold together? Well, my friends, this is where our journey up the mountain ends. God doesn't provide a defense of his character that he hopes that we'll find appealing. He speaks, we affirm. Wherever he closes his holy mouth, we must rest content because we don't judge God. In light of all this, it seems best to understand this is saying that God chose to have mercy on many and leave the rest to their own choice. And he does all this to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So let's just come back down the mountain now. Does any of this, what we've just read or talked about, mean that we don't need to go share the gospel with people if God is ultimately sovereign over all things? No. We're going to get there very soon in chapter 10, where Paul himself in moments will tell us, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him who they have not believed? And how can they call on him of when they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So nothing Paul said contradicts our responsibility to share a goodwill, honest, proclamation offer of the gospel 
to anyone and to everyone. Why? Because we don't know who the elect are. The secrets of their hearts are not known to us. Remember, we didn't make it to the top of the mountain, guys. We didn't get up there to open the book of life to see whose name is written down in there. We didn't sign the guest book. That is God's knowledge. That is not our knowledge. Our responsibility is to share the gospel freely and genuinely with every person without discrimination. Now, you might say, well, if we don't know who's elect, well, how can we have any assurance of salvation? How would I know that I'm saved? Can we know that I'm saved? Our assurance of faith must first be based on God's unshakable promises. If we're thinking, trying to figure out if, if we're saved, you start there. You start with God, start with his word, start with his promises, start with his trustworthiness, his faithfulness. God promises that those who call upon his name will be saved. Done. Christ's objective righteousness is the basis of our assurance, first and foremost. But beyond that, we can examine our lives for fruit and evidence that we have truly been born again, that we have faith in Christ. And it's at this point that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. This is Romans chapter 8. Church membership, I might add, is a helpful assurance of faith. Because we live in community together with one another, we're able to testify into one another's lives about the, the good fruit that we see and help build up one another's assurance of salvation, to help one another to look to Christ with true devotion and hope. God declares to us who he is, and he has told us that he is merciful and just. He is merciful to save some without any regard to their willing or their doing. And he is just in leaving others into the fall into which they have thrown themselves. Here's Paul's response in one sentence. No one receives injustice from the hand of God. That's not how it works. I want to end by just acknowledging the spiritual danger of being this high in a mountain. Anytime we examine doctrines like this, you, you, you definitely have questions, and as I've said, that's great, that's to be expected, but you must not have accusations, okay? You may be tempted to these same prideful accusations that we've just read here from God. He's unjust, he's unfair. Please recognize the deluding influence of Satan. John Bunyan was a preacher and author in the 1600s, and he wrote a book, we know Pilgrim's Progress, but he has another book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in this book, it's written sort of as his spiritual autobiography where he talks about a period of time in his life which lasted for about a year where he deeply questioned his own salvation. He described it as a season of spiritual warfare. He was tossed back and forth between taking joy in God on the one hand and not trusting God on the other. John read Romans 9.16 where it says salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So he began to question his salvation. How could he know whether God had mercy on him? Was there really nothing that he could do, even some small thing, anything in and of himself that he could do to gain salvation, to have some assurance? The tempter prodded these thoughts along and would say things, whisper them into his heart and into his mind and say things like, you're right. 
you might as well stop even trying to pursue Christ. You'll never know if God saved you. Just give up. At the time, he didn't realize that this was a temptation of the devil at all. He thought he was just thinking reasonably. He was trying to be logical. Satan used his anxiety about his salvation against him. He would even read in Isaiah 57 where it says, there is no peace for the wicked. So he's like, I don't have peace. I must be wicked. But there were other passages. Other passages of scripture that brought him back to reality out of that mountain madness. Romans 8.35 told him that nothing could separate him from the love of Christ. Jeremiah 3.4 taught him that even when Israel had done all the evil they could, nothing could separate them from he, he invites them to call. Call on me for salvation. He was encouraged by 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. In him we might become the righteousness of God. And he had a breakthrough moment. Let me just read this brief passage. I remember that one day as I was traveling into the country and musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart, considering the enmity that was in me to God, that scripture came into my mind that said, He has made peace by the blood of his cross, by which I was made to see both again and again that day that God and my soul were friends by his blood. I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through his blood. This was a good day to me. I hope I shall never forget it. John Bunyan was helped by the Holy Spirit and from counsel from friends and from his pastor to see that Scripture actually gave him reason to be joyful, reason to be confident about his salvation. Don't let Satan tempt you to despair of God's love, of God's mercy. Don't let Satan steal your joy of salvation. Don't let your despair of God's love drive a wedge between you and your Savior. If you have never trusted in Christ and you hear him calling to you even now, call back. Don't harden your heart. Pray. Never let me
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. In the way that I ought to speak. This is quite amazing what he says here. He is revealing here his total dependence on the Lord. And he's asking for prayer because he's saying it won't happen unless God intervenes. And that's the reality of prayer. It's not going to happen unless God intervenes. Look at this more closely. He says, Frank, the same time for us as well, that God may open a door for the word. Wow, we need to understand this and get this example. There's a lot of people out there priming the gospel pump or going out yelling to the crowds, repent, whatever it might be. The reality is God opens the door, and it is based on prayer when someone's heart has changed. God opens the door for the word. He is the one. Sadly, there's so much evangelism these days pushing the gospel down non-believers' throats. Paul didn't do this. He was praying for opportunities and open doors. He says here that God would open a door for us. He's not pounding on it, trying to bust through it, but that God would open a door for what? For the word. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul shared in his report as he returned from his first missionary journey? Acts 14. Turn to Acts 14, 26. And you see, when you're dependent on the Lord, guess who gets the glory when it happens? The Lord does, doesn't it? The Lord does. Acts 14, 26. The middle of that. So, and from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God before the work which they had accomplished. Verse 27, Acts 14. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, oh, they came together. Nobody's staying home. They're all together. They began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he, speaking of God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. God did it. The Lord Jesus Christ would share to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I put an open door before you. No one can shut. When the Lord does it, the Lord does it. We don't have to force anything. The Lord is the one who opens the doors. And this shows total dependence. We should be praying, Lord, open a door for the gospel with my parents, with my husband, with my wife, with whatever it might be. Open doors. We should be praying for one another. Open doors for the gospel, for our relatives, for those around us. Open doors, Lord God. 
And not only does he pray for an open door, he prays for the right way in which he goes through that open door. It's one thing to have an open door. It's another thing to do what you ought to do when that door is open. Notice what he says back in Colossians chapter 4. Stay back there. Colossians 4. He says, praying, verse 3, at the same time for us as well, that God may open up a door for the word so that we may speak forth, what? The mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God who took on human flesh, the Messiah King who died for your sins. He had to suffer first for the glories to come. That we would speak of Christ. That we would speak of Christ. And he says, for which I have been imprisoned. And then notice this more humble dependence. This is so important. Verse 4, and we can learn from Paul's example. In order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Wow. That's evangelism. That's the way we should be doing it. Pray for us that God would open a door. And when he opens that door, that we would proclaim Christ And that we would do it in a manner that we ought to do it. In the manner in which we ought to speak. That we are obligated to speak. I need prayer because if I don't have the Lord's help, I will not do that. Pray. Tremendous reality. Paul understood his gifting and responsibility, yet he understood he could not accomplish it apart from the Lord's complete help. Therefore, he requests prayer and for open doors and how he ought to speak. The term ought to speak speaks of compulsion and proper words. So then, if we would only all minister this way, if we would be dependent in that way, we need to be reminded. One last request he makes, which is very similar, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. So although our passage just says pray for us, we have all these other examples of where Paul has asked for prayer. And every single one has to do with the word of God going out, functioning properly in Christ, and being protected from evildoers. Ephesians chapter 6, there's another picture from this here. Ephesians 6.18, this is speaking in the context of putting on the form of God because we have a spiritual enemy, the devil. With all prayer and petition, Ephesians 6.18, in the spirit With this in mind, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And notice what he says, verse 19, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains in that in proclaiming I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Pray for me that I speak the way I ought to speak, that I would be bold in that context. And we know it would be in the context of open doors, right? From what we've read in the other prayer requests. Brothers and sisters, pray for those who share the word of God. They are a target for Satan. They're a target for pride also. You know that? Doing things within their own strength rather than trusting and relying completely on Christ. Listen to this prayer of believers after Peter and John were released. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This is the church praying for it. You know, so often our prayers are about help Aunt Sally, help this, help that. You know, we're to pray about everything. That's okay. But the reality is we should be praying about the things God has us here on earth to do. The ministry that he is doing through the church. Acts 4.23. And when they had been released, that's Peter and John, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, 
O Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, didst say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a vain thing or devise futile things? The kings of earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant, here you go, that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence. And while they did extend thy hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Pray that we'd speak the word of God. God would open a door for the word. God would protect us from evildoers. You see, God does answer the prayers of those who are walking with him, praying according to his will. James chapter 5 says, The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplished much. He gives the example of Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. And he prayed again, the sky poured forth rain, and the earth produced fruit. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. First Peter chapter 3, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Evaluate your prayer life. What do you pray for? We need to be praying for those who share the word of God. You need to be praying for me. And a lot of you do, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. But keep praying. That God would open doors, that we would speak as we ought to speak. We'd give clear, bold proclamation in total dependence to him. That God would protect us from the evil one and evil men, for not all have faith. Be praying. So Paul says in his last words here to them in this letter, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. Okay, back in our passage, notice what he says after that. And then we're going to see we all are to express a holy affection for one another. We'll talk about that. Brethren, pray for us. And then verse 26, 1 Thessalonians 5. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. All right. This is a command. We're like, okay, what does this mean, right? (laughs) We're all going, hmm, right? Well, hopefully we'll be able to understand what it means because we need to understand the context that it was given and we need to understand what a greeting was back in those days. We understand the context from Scripture, what a greeting is, and then what it means in terms of a holy kiss. Now, in general, a greeting was a way in which those who loved one another expressed that love when they would see one another. That's the same for us. You see those you love, your family, you say, oh, you know, you're greeting them, right? Culturally speaking, apart from a relationship with the Lord, we understand that, right? It's one thing to say, hi. It's another thing to greet someone you love. It's different, right? It's different. You might give them a hug or whatever it might be. 
when you greet them. Now here, the practice of greeting back at that time was related to families, individual families, but also a religious family, such as the Jews considered themselves as a religious family, like the church in a sense. So they would greet one another in certain ways because of that relationship that they had together. Now this would include a kiss, which was cultural at the time of Jesus and at the time of Paul. Now, let me explain this. Do you remember when Jesus reproved the Pharisees, when they had invited him, and a woman, a sinner, they called her, she's probably a prostitute, was weeping at his feet and wiping them with her hair and kissing them and anointing his feet, and how the Pharisees responded in hypocritical judgment? Well, how did Jesus respond? Now, this is important because it gives us an idea of this idea of a greeting with a kiss. Look at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 44. You know, it's important to look at our historical culture and try to interpret that way, but that's not the primary way we interpret Scripture. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. Luke chapter 7, verse 44. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, that's not Simon Peter, by the way. He said, do you see this woman? I entered your house. He was the Pharisee that his house is his house, right? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me what? No kiss. It was a greeting. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time she has has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. So this idea, it was a holy, it was a greeting. It was a greeting of those who had a relationship. They were showing a love for one another. And the Jews had that, culturally speaking, within their nation because they were of the Lord, at least outwardly. Now, notice he says back in our passage, greet one another with a holy kiss. He explains it, doesn't he? Folks, there are greetings that are not holy. There are greetings that are holy. Certainly some greetings can be, unfortunately, sexual in nature. It can be that way. I heard of a pastor who would hug everybody at the front door. Now, I'm not saying I know his heart, you know, but he wasn't very wise. And a non-believer came up to him one day and said, I see how you hug all the babes and winked at him. The reality is we need to be very careful in our greetings. It needs to be holy. It needs to be holy. Okay, now it also needs to not be deceitful or hypocritical. Can you think of someone in Scripture who gave Jesus a kiss and it was deceitful and hypocritical? Look at Luke chapter 22. This was a standard greeting in that time. And usually you see it between men and men and women and women in that sense, even though the woman was kissing Jesus' feet. But standardly, that's what you see. Notice what he does. Luke 22 Verse 47, while he was still speaking, that's the Lord Jesus, a multitude came and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to do what? To kiss him. It's a greeting. And he says here, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? You're a hypocrite, Judas. You see, it was a standard greeting, but that greeting could be hypocritical or sinful. 
unholy. And we're being commanded to greet all the brethren, not a few of them. You know, there's lots of little cliques in churches. The people you like, oh, they get their greeting. But the other ones are kind of, well, you know, your heart isn't there. Well, that point is not the greeting. The point is where is your heart towards everybody? Greet everyone, as we're going to see. We should have a heart towards every true believer, as we're going to see. It shouldn't be clicky. So notice what he says. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, the possibility is he's saying greet for us, but really in the context here, I don't think that's it, because in other places he'll say greet him for us. Here he's not saying I think he's talking about greeting. Greet one another. Because he's going to say the next thing, have the letter read to everybody. So what's the significance of a greeting? As I mentioned before, it speaks of affection within a family. And the Jews understood the significance. There was either a family or a religious bond. And for us, all the brethren, we are in the family of God. The family of God is a higher family than our own families. We should be greeting one another with our hearts in a sense, first of all, not the action outwardly, but we should want to see those who are brothers and sisters of Christ even more than our own families. What did Jesus say, Matthew chapter 12, about his family? It wasn't that he was treating them badly. It's that there's a higher family. There's a higher family. Matthew 12, verse 47, and someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, emphatically. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother, sister, and mother. And he goes on to say the very same thing in Luke chapter 8, where he says, My mother and brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. They're those who obey God. They're new creations. They're those who have the ability now and the desire to obey God. That's my family. So we are to greet one another or greet all the brethren. We're to have an affection for those who are spiritual brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We're to do that, and it is to be holy. It's to be holy. Now, how do we do it in a holy manner? Well, certainly there's within the customs in which we live, right? You know, we don't have a custom where we kiss everybody that comes around. There's a little bit. I mean, every once in a while you'll see those, you know, informal settings, you know, kissing the cheek. You know, there's that, maybe that, you know, there's that semi-culturally. But the reality is, in our culture, because it's so sexual, things can be misconstrued very easily. And we need to be very careful that what we do is holy from the inside, but also does not lend to the appearance of being unholy on the outside. Sadly, we've had people here who were huggers. And you may people may have hugged. Don't judge people. You don't know where their hearts are at. Let God deal with that, okay? But we can learn that we weren't misconstrued, okay? But we've had people that have proved themselves to be maybe not spiritually right after they've left, but they were hugging everybody. It would make me uncomfortable, Every woman came through, oh, you know, and I don't know what the heart was going on there. But we need to stay away from that which is unholy. I would say, not as a law or a rule or anything like that, but maybe men hug men and women hug women. That seems holy to me. I would be cautious about the other, okay? Now, obviously, there's a context to that. Don't be going around be the hug police, all right? We're to love one another. We're to love one another, okay? But we need to be discerning in that. It says, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. As long as it's holy and how you do it, then that's good. But I think the point is, 
we should have an affection. The greeting was an affection. It was an affection. A family. It's saying, as we'll see, it was saying, we are family. We are together in Christ. You see in Scripture all throughout about greeting one another. You see it, Philippians chapter 4, 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Hebrews 13, 24. Greet all the leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Hey, we are in Christ. It's a special bond. Now, something that's important, and there's two caveats, and I already mentioned one part of it already, was we just don't greet those within the body of Christ that we are clicky or like more than others. Be very careful. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? Turn to Matthew 5. Now, the assumption is this is Israel. They are God's people. Remember the context. So it's almost like the church in a sense. Now, not everyone who was Israel really was Israel, that they really believed, right? We know that. But the assumption is they're God's people, okay? And notice what he says, Matthew 5, 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You're not to be isolated in your greeting. And I think in the context for us, if it says greet all the brethren, there shouldn't be a few that you greet more than you greet anyone else. There should be a heart affection. And I'll share this at times, and it's not the way it used to be in our church, but it was this way before. People would come in the door, and my heart's like, I want to say hi, and people are just sitting there like ignoring everybody. Don't manufacture that, but you should be happy to see them. It should be a blessing. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. They are my brothers and sisters.
we are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.